Hello, and welcome to today's podcast episode on bipolar depression. This episode is part of the Clinical Care Options podcast series, Advancing Care in Bipolar Depression. I'm Dr. Roger McIntyre, Professor of Psychiatry and Pharmacology at the University of Toronto. A pleasure to be with you. And joining me today to discuss bipolar depression and symptom improvement timelines is a very good friend of mine and colleague, Dr. Joe Goldberg, who's the Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. Joe, great to work with you again. Hi, Roger. A pleasure. Thank you all for joining us today. Hope you're going to find this interesting as much as we will. Absolutely. Uh, Without further ado, Joe, let's get right into the conversation. Um, Let's begin with really what affects the symptom improvement timeline. It's a bit of a kind of a tongue tire there. In other words, what's affecting symptom improvement and really the trajectory of symptom improvement in bipolar disorder? I'll start. So I think it's a really interesting question because it brings to mind the, the notion that depression is a syndrome. It's a constellation of signs and symptoms. Patients themselves or even our colleagues may be struck mainly by a single symptom like, oh, uh, depressed mood or crying or, or suicidality or something that that you, you don't really deconstruct from the whole syndrome. So as a clinician, we're really thinking about the, the constellation and the ways in which it ought to move together, the ways in which some symptoms may be more prominent and others you have to ask about, um, and, and the timeline, which patients kind of want to know. So when am I going to feel better? And what, is, what does feel better mean? Does that mean you'll sleep better first? Does that mean that you'll concentrate better first? Does that mean that you'll cry less first? So, um, uh, you know, when we think about the time frame for resolution of a syndrome of, of depression, really either in bipolar or unipolar depression, studies would tell us that the vegetative features tend to loosen up sooner than the, the cognitive features. You know, sleep, energy, appetite may be among the, the first things that you see. And, and that kind of makes sense if you think about it, because the cognitive symptoms of depression, self-esteem, concentration, motivation, apathy, uh, anhedonia. Uh, you know, some of these are, are in, in ways, I, ideas and constructs that develop over time, especially things around self-worth, self-esteem, uh, appraisal of the future, a sense of hopelessness. So in a way, what I'll often say to patients, especially if there's a psychotherapy in the pictures, let's try to make you more physically comfortable. Let's get your energy better, your sleep better, um, the, the, the basic ability to start to feel better. And then we can start to tackle some of the the ideas about why should I get out of bed in the morning if I have more energy? What do I want to do? Because that then leads to the third element of improvement, which is functioning. And that always lags behind the symptoms. But you know, I'll sort of forecast it to patients in that sort of three-part fashion. We'll get you feeling physically better, then we'll tackle the ways in which you think about yourself and how the depression has altered your perspective about you in the world, and then try to get you up on your feet and functioning. Want to add to that, Roger? Yeah, look, I agree with all that, Joe. And, you know, I what for me has been really, really, really important as part of that very initial shared decision, shared discussion with patients is what you just said. That is having a realistic timeline um, as to these symptoms or these domains. For example, so many people that I meet will say, I want to feel better. And that itself requires a fairly in-depth, um, uh, you know, if you will, sort of breaking that down, what that really means. And I think we agree that when people say that, that's sort of a common language that represents many different things. But what it typically means is getting function back to where they were prior to the index depressive episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be you know, looking forward to you know, events, feeling a sense of pleasure and a hedonistic repertoire that we're used to. 
Um, and those are the very domains that are, as you hinted at, that being the cognitive domain, the uh, we'll call it the hedonistic or the reward domain, anhedonia, anticipating pleasure, experiencing pleasure, making pleasure-based decisions or, or reward-based decisions that tend to persist. And I've been really struck in my experience that I'll see a patient, their depression score is improving based on not just my assessment, but the patient outcome assessment, that they don't feel much better. And I think it speaks to, in part, some of these aspects. What's really interesting is that is, you know, I, I often wonder, Joe, if there's a way that we can accelerate some of this. The function typically takes longer. And I've had so many patients say to me, you know, Dr. McIntyre, I can't go back to work. I can't go back to school to my depression's fully better. And then I sometimes say to them, Joe, rightly or wrongly, I think I'm right in saying this, is that, you know, why don't we try to get your functioning improved starting now while we're also treating your depression? And by doing so, maybe we can maybe accelerate uh, your depression getting better, maybe some through, through behavioral activation or more engagement in their life. Just a thought. Yeah, that that is reminiscent of how you treat someone after an MI, right? It's like, when can I get out of bed and start walking and exercising? Like, as soon as you can get out of bed and start walking and exercising. Right. So right. Yeah, you'll see somebody with a depression who says, you know, it's really tough to get up and get going. And one of the hardest things, but one of the most necessary things, I think, to say to the patient is, I understand how hard it is. And we, we got it together, you and I and anyone else in our in the treatment team has to figure out how to help you do that. So if you're sleeping until 11, you know, the, the, the clouds are not going to part suddenly one day and boom, you're out of bed at 8 a.m. You, you have to sort of take steps to that. And that, you know, like what you were touching on hedonic capacity is what is there to look forward to to get up? Uh, so if there really isn't much structure in the day and there's a sense of lethargy and malaise, it's going to be a lot harder than saying, Let's pick one activity and make it a simple one. It could be going down the street for a cup of coffee. It could be walking your dog. Um, it could be spending some time with your child. Just something that you know is in place that that's an, a, a motivator to get you up and going. And that has a twofold purpose because as as we talk about things like the ability to feel pleasure from something that normally does give you pleasure, depression robs one of that ability. We're interested in. How much effort goes into that? So if, say, going for, I don't know, a, a jog or, or we're just walking around the block in the morning or gardening normally is a source of pleasure, but isn't. Uh, as we say, let, let's just take inroads and try to get this going. Do you start to notice less effortfulness? Because that's going to be a barometer of are you yeah. getting better? Absolutely. Yeah. Let me throw one more factor in since you also mentioned timelines. And I'd, I'd say here's an important point that differentiates bipolar depression from unipolar um, is, is you know, wh where have you been in your trajectory? In the unipolar world, somebody goes from euthymia to depressed. It's kind of a binary function. And in the bipolar world, that can happen. But more often than not, the duration of a depression may be shorter than in unipolar patients, three to five months, depending on the study you look at. Um, and, and you can have more than one episode per, per year. Uh, and that may not necessarily be a depression. It may be a hypomania, it may be a mania, it may be something with mixed features, it may be subsyndromal. So I always urge colleagues to to try to do, at, at least for the last six, if not 12 months, some effort at a mood chart just to be able to gauge where you've been. Because if this depression began five months ago, you should be getting near the end of it by the natural course. If it began five days ago or you know, thereabouts, you're in for a longer natural course. And if the, the endogenous cycle pattern is such that every spring a hypomania comes 
and you know we're now in March, that's going to influence our projections. So one of the one of the characteristics that I think influences our our prognosticating is what your pattern has been like over the last year. Are there any seasonal components? Um, and what's the natural course of things been to predict where you're likely to wind up? Yeah, uh, all excellent points, Joe. You know, this point about, you know, symptoms and the trajectory has implications also for diagnosing comorbidity and separately targeting comorbidity. For example, you see a patient who has bipolar depression, they're very often uh, experiencing anxiety symptoms, uh, cognitive distractibility, other aspects. Clearly, drug and alcohol misuse is often complicating uh, the picture, and the list goes on. In fact, we know that at least 50% of people who present with bipolar depression have three or more comorbid conditions. And I've often found it helpful vis-a-vis uh, -vis the trajectory of symptoms in informing me indirectly about are the symptoms that the patient's complaining about, is it can be fully um, explained by bipolar depression or is it a comorbid condition? And depending on the patient, this timeline could shed some light on that. For example, let's say the patient's depression uh, fully lifted, but now they continue to have pervasive, excessive, uncontrollable worry, or they continue to have distractibility that is really quite impairing, quality of life reducing, et cetera. Um, is that bipolar depression residual symptom? Is that comorbidity? And these types of questions are not just academic because when the patient's lifted out of that depression, we then often are asked to target some of these other, other ongoing comorbid problems. So I find that this timeline issue is important for A, trying to decompose bipolar depression with realistic expectations of timelines, but also it could indirectly inform whether or not the person does have comorbidity or whether that's actually parsimoniously explained by the depression. So on that note, Joe, let me ask this question. So what is an appropriate time to bring a person back for a follow-up appointment after they get that first prescription? As soon as you need to, uh, meaning as, as soon as you, you need another data point so that you, you're on top of things. Um, boy, let, let me unpack some of the really crucial things you just said, Roger. And this is to those of us who study this illness uh, and are intrigued by it as researchers, it's so multifaceted. Um, uh, th th there is just the mood piece. There are the cognitive pieces. There are the functional pieces. There are the comorbidities, as you mentioned, and the functional implications. So my prognostication will, will, will vary as a function of all those things. Someone who was in school and has a first episode and, and is reorienting to what does this mean um, and, and the idea of taking medicines is in a different category than someone who's having their third or fourth episode or later on in the course. Someone who says to me, well, gee, Dr. Goldberg, you know, the only thing that helps is smoking weed every night. And you probably won't approve of that, Dr. Goldberg, but it's all that helps me. I, I can predict things differently for that patient, no matter what they think is helpful to them, than someone who's saying to me, uh, I want to do everything I can, uh, educate me about this illness. Um, do, do I need to regulate my sleep-wake cycle differently? Can I drink alcohol? Any? None? Uh, what other medicines do I take? Do I have a medical illness in addition to that? How do I deal with stress? So, so there's so many facets here. I, my experience, I find it, it is worth, if you can, it is worth the investment of time on the front end to do as comprehensive an assessment of all these variables as you can, sometimes over more than one visit, and preferably with some collateral 
input from others so that you know what you're up against because when to bring the patient back and what to expect and what kind of time frame will depend on all these things. Someone who's been having a really hard time functioning for many, many months as opposed to have, you know, they just went on medical leave as opposed to they're teetering on medical leave as opposed to their, their postpartum. Everybody's unique. So I really think it's very individualized. That said, um, depending on the severity and the chronicity of things, you want to keep on top of this, especially in someone that you don't know well. So practice guidelines would tell us that patients with a major depressive episode really need to be seen weekly, if not even more, depending on the level of severity, right? That may not necessarily be just by the, the clinician doing prescribing. If there's an, a, a team, if there's a psychotherapist, if there are any other clinicians in the picture, that all that all has bearing. But till you know what, what you're up against, um, in part because you want to track improvement, but in part also because you want to track decline. Someone who's got a moderately severe depression that then subluxes into a, a more severe depression or a psychotic depression or a suicidal depression or a relapse of substance use may need a higher level of care. They, they can go from bad to worse. They may need to be in the hospital. They may need more allied clinicians. So on the front end, um, I, I try to encourage a very lavish approach like the patient to do mood charting. I like them to keep track of things. I give them instructions on when to contact me if things get worse. And then with our fingers and toes crossed, as things start to improve, you know, I'll tell patients one, one of my goals is to become irrelevant uh, as fast as possible, but not faster than, than makes sense, which is to say, if we can get you better, um, you know, we'll, we'll get you on track. Uh, Donald Klein, famous psychopharmacologist, used to say to patients at the end of a first visit, if all goes well, I won't see you much. And, yeah. you know, if we want to impart a sense of optimism about this illness, which I think we really honestly can do, it means if we do all the right things, we'll, we'll invest a lot of time and energy up front uh, to try to make this condition that goes into remission and stays there. Oh, absolutely. And I love the idea of the diary. The diary very much uh, informs patient literacy and also dialogue with, uh, you know, illness literacy and dialogue with, with the care provider. And I still to this day use it routinely in my practice. You know, thinking about mania and depression, we're focusing on depression today. Mania clearly does not uh, naturalistically, meaning untreated, doesn't last as long typically as what you described in depression, uh, Joe. I have found that clearly what everyone else finds, mania is not as long as depression. And I should also maybe preface by saying it depends. Is this the first episode mm -hmm. of bipolarity or is this the fifth or the 15th episode? Uh, higher frequency episodes take longer to recover, more severe and less cooperative with mm -hmm. treatment. Now, in mania, which tends to resolve very quickly, um, it also depends on the treatment. I think one of the reasons I prefer to use second-generation FDA-approved agents in mania um, is because they do work more rapidly. I love lithium. I use lithium extensively, but lithium is not as rapid as an antipsychotic, at least in select symptoms like agitation, irritability, some of those very difficult symptoms that can be uh, a medical emergency uh, uh, for the patient. I very much uh, use lithium, but doesn't quite have that rapidity. Now, in depression, we have five FDA-approved treatments for bipolar depression. And one of the observations, Joe, and you've you and I have talked about this before, is you know, the patient starts on an FDA-approved treatment for bipolar depression. How long should we wait before we say this trajectory is not going in the right direction? And there's been an observation made in psychiatry across different diagnostic entities, as well as different clinical presentations. Your best predictor of where you're going is that first one to two weeks. So when you start the medication at the initiation dose as presented the product monograph, 
If the patient after two weeks is not exhibiting, not reporting any type of meaningful change, that's the clarion call to perhaps thinking about increasing the dose. So when I started, Joe, uh, probably around, I think around the same time as yourself, uh, that we were talking six weeks, eight weeks back in the day. But I think mm -hmm. we're now talking two to three weeks, two to four, certainly four weeks max in dose optimization. Now, if the patient is showing improvement based on the diary, based on measurement-based care, I would watch and wait to see that the trajectory is still going in the right direction. For those interested, um, what I'm referring to is negative and positive predictive value, respectively. Mm -hmm. In other words, is the absence of benefit, uh, that's got very powerful negative predictive value. You're not on the right track on that dose. But positive predictive value, less robust as negative predictive value. But the gist of it is, if you're getting some improvement in that first couple of weeks, it seems to be a more positive uh, suggestion. You're on the right track. Of course, just keep watching and waiting. Joe, do you do things differently? No, I'm just absorbing everything you've said. And, and I want to just amplify a couple of, of, of the pearls, Roger. I hope everybody's put your phone down and listen to what Roger's saying, because I always learn things when I talk to Roger and hope you will too. So, so this too, uh, the reason I love the second visit for so many reasons, uh, which you just described, it's a benchmark. So what Roger's saying is you're looking for what, what statisticians would call a 20% improvement or a just noticeable difference, because you're right, there have been a number of studies that have looked at this in bipolar disorder. I think our colleague Joe Calabrese published something on this looking across agents. You'd like to see at least a 20% improvement by two weeks, not a 90% improvement and not a 0% improvement. So this is also where measurement-based care can be very valuable, not just for you to track things, but so the patient has some tangible expectation. Let's suppose you're doing a PHQ-9 or uh, a Beck scale or, or, or even a Madras or so, something, even a visual analog scale will do something that's a metric. So if I see Mr. Smith and they have a PHQ-9 of, uh, of uh, 22 on the first visit, which is pretty severely depressed, and they come back two weeks later um, and their PHQ-9 is an 18 or a 17, I'm not going to say great. I'm going to say you are right on target. And they're going to say, what do you mean? I'm still depressed. And I'm going to say, yes, um, you've had a 20% reduction in symptoms in the first weeks. That's what we're looking for because it's a predictor of better things to come down the road. If you haven't had that, I agree with you. We got to do something. That may mean raising a dose. That may mean an augmentation. That may mean adding a psychotherapy. It means you got to do something. But I will say to Mr. Smith, no, no, no. You are right where you should be. This is like when, when your child plants an avocado seed and you look at it after a week or two, you don't get a tree. You don't even get a plant. You get a sprout and maybe a little leaflet. And if you don't get that, there's something wrong with the avocado pit. You're <laughs> overwatering it. You're, I, I've done this with children and with patients. So I will use that in part as an engagement tool. And I'll even say to the patient, and they'll know, they'll come to me and say, so I've, I've had my 20% improvement. What does that mean? It means we're on the right track. We're not done by any means, but it's a good predictor. And when you're trying to engage people and st stave off things like poor adherence or, you know, why bother? To be able to say to somebody that they're, they're showing signs um, is very empowering. It's a bit like when you're on a diet, uh, you, you know, you think, well, I've only lost two pounds in a week. You say, yeah, that, that's about right. That's, that's what's going to continue. A pound or two a week is what you're aiming for, not 10 pounds biggest loser in the first week. That's not going to endure. So um, it's engaging for patients to have that. It gives them something tangible to track. Um, and then over the next, you know, you're talking about what's an adequate trial. You know, I think in bipolar depression, most clinical trials 
tend to go about four, five, maybe six weeks. Studies would say if you haven't seen you know, a meaningful improvement, let's call that a response. So your PHQ is at least 50% less than when you began by week four or five. This is maybe not going to get you more added benefit uh, with some exceptions, if there's comorbidities, if there's anxiety, if it's been more chronic. But on the whole, if I haven't seen a more substantial improvement by that point, that's when I start to think about, do I want to augment with something? Um, you know, do we want to change classes? And I personally, I'll be curious what you think, Roger, I, I, I'm a little more leery about um, starting from scratch and saying, well, let's pull up stakes and try something different. If there hasn't been at least some improvement, uh, in part, all the FDA approved treatments have large effect sizes, their differences, you know, in part lie in some nuanced ways about tolerability or maybe breadth of spectrum. Um, but if you've started with one of those, I would rather not a, a, a abandon it. I'd rather augment it with, with a, a mood stabilizing agent, agent like Lamotrigine, or we can talk about other things to augment with. Um, but if I haven't seen any improvement within that time frame, then that means, you know, let's not Let's not beat a dead horse. And there's other options to move on to with that. Oh, so well put. And Joe, I'm in the same camp as you. I agree with you that I do the same. When a patient presents that had some partial improvement, I tend to add on. Of course, I try to keep this rational rather than irrational. In other words, try to have complementary pharmacology rather than starting fresh anew and starting from scratch. You said lifting up stakes and, and, and going to something else. And as we know, Joe, in the area of bipolar disorder, once we start getting into second line, third line, add-on strategies, um, that's where uh, the randomized controlled trials, you know, the level one evidence uh, mm -hmm. begins to uh, appear in the rear view mirror as we look forward. We're really, in fact, relying on real world data and clinical experience in obviously doing this, uh, you know, in, in, in collaboration with our patient. It's one of the questions mm -hmm. always comes up is, you know, what's the timeline of side effects? We're talking about the timeline of efficacy of treatment, equally important, the timeline of side effects. But what I would say, it's kind of the zig and the zag. Um, what I've noticed is, is that for some side effects, not all, for example, akathisia can be seen with some uh, agents for bipolar depression. Somnolence can be seen with some agents. Those are just two. So in, in many patients, those side effects, it's kind of an unfair proposition they appear before the symptomatic improvement appears, and that doesn't seem fair. But for many people, not all, those symptoms can zig. They can go down over the next one to two weeks while the improvement begins to zag, so to speak. So symptoms kind of get better over one to two weeks. Side effects tend to come down. At least some side effects, not all. If you would have asked me, Joe, 25 years ago when I started, Roger, you're going to spend 75% of your life doing psychotherapy and psychoeducation. I would have said, really? Uh, that doesn't make any sense. That's what we have to do to support patients so they have realistic understandings of these trajectories of side effects. Of course, not all side effects will go away in two weeks, and some even appear later. Some appear after two to three weeks. Some appear four weeks later that it was a honeymoon period. Um, your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, you know, here's where um, the rules of the road can be helpful to the prescriber and the patient. So some side effects, you know, nausea, headache, insomnia, things we can warn patients about is transient and at worst annoying and we'll weather through. Others we may have a little more sway over. I'll give you an example. You mentioned akathisia. So pretty much always a dose-related phenomenon. And while on the one hand, Raj, you were saying before, if you're not seeing that 20%-ish improvement by two weeks, you might raise the dose. It depends. Depends on the drug. 
Um, some of the second generation antipsychotics that have FDA indications for bipolar depression have very dose related akathisia and higher doses have not necessarily been shown to have a bigger effect. So, for instance, in the case of uh, cariprazine, you know, where the dosing is 1.5 or 3 milligrams a day for bipolar depression, going higher hasn't been shown to do more, but it does give you more akathisia. And in the case of lorazidone, uh, you know, one of the FDA-approved agents for bipolar depression, either alone or with lithium or valproate, um, in the original monotherapy studies, the mean dose was about 30 milligrams a day, and higher didn't necessarily give you more benefit, but you might have gotten more side effects. So I once saw somebody who came for a consultation and their their doctor wanted to be very aggressive and they kind of like ramp them up to 120 milligrams a day of lorazidone within two weeks. And the patient really was very uncomfortable. And, and the doctor was saying, this is a good drug, stay with it. And I end up saying it is a good drug, but you know, you're, you're on like four times the dose you should be on. And you're, you're noticing side effects that are not necessarily even, you know, worth worth a higher dose. So knowing what's an effective dose and an effective time frame and when to go up is, is one way to manage these things. Um, knowing the pharmacokinetics is another, some, you know, some drugs like P450 interactions, if somebody is uh, particularly sensitive to side effects, you might want to be mindful of somebody say on lithium and divalprox and you, you neglected to lower the dose of the lamotrigine uh, because of the drug interaction, they may be a little higher risk for skin rashes. Anyway, there's, there's a lot of things that may be dose-related that we can manage. There are times where an antidote makes sense, uh, you know, beta blockers for tremor with drugs like lithium or divalproex, sexual dysfunction uh, with certain agents and making sure that prolactin's not going up. So I will tell, oh, and of course, weight, weight gain and metabolics. We now have some newer drugs that seem um, kinder and gentler uh, than some of the older drugs that we've been using for bipolar depression when it comes to minimizing weight gain. So I will tell patients, we will track this. If we're seeing a side effect that emerges, we'll intervene. I will be your wingman, your wing person. And if we're seeing something that's not to your liking, please let me know. If there's one message I like to convey, it's to tell patients, look, uh, this is a very treatable condition, but some people may find if it's not getting better as fast as they want or the way they want, they may just leave treatment or, or otherwise, you know, stop things. I'll ask you just one, loop me in. If you read something online about a side effect you're worried about, run it by me. If, you, if, you, if you're noticing weight gain, if you're noticing anything, run it by me. I may have a strategy to help. So really to try to forge, forge the therapeutic alliance is, is one very key way to try to minimize um, the, the potential for a dropout or, or side effects being a reason for dropout. Great points, Joe. Uh, we only have a few minutes left, literally just a few minutes left, and we've left the question that requires a three-hour discussion to three minutes, um, and that is how do we manage adherence? I'll give you a first crack at it. Uh, I'll use the word multi uh, phrase, multi-pronged approach. How's that? Mm, Look, adherence like that. Is, it's a complicated human behavior. It has individual factors. There are clearly medication factors. There's clinician, there's social, there's cultural, there's economic factors all at play. So it'd be naive, to, in fact, to think that just a, you know, a brief snippet of information is going to change someone's behavior overnight. It's just recognizing this complexity, not being overwhelmed by it, recognizing it. So call upon different tactics, Be provide relevant education on the treatment and reasonable trajectory of symptom improvement side effects. I engage peer support, uh, DBSA, Depression Bipolar Support Alliance. Mm -hmm. That's very compelling for people to hear. 
others who are living with the illness and side effects, et cetera, how to manage aspects of adherence. And also, in fact, recognizing that there's many different um, uh, potential facilitators here in the dashboard. In other words, psychoeducation, maybe psychotherapy, maybe family interventions, maybe couples interventions, um, and, 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 and so on. So I, I think for me, Joe, I have people in my practice, I've seen them for two decades, who are not adherent most of those two decades. Uh, so I don't claim to be perfect in this area, but what I've learned in my experience is uh, taking an empathic, shared decision, patient-centric approach, recognizing uh, the complexity of the factor and calling upon um, these different tactics throughout the journey uh, to improve adherence. I'll stop there. Uh, echo what you said, just to emphasize, you know, uh, I'm not here to judge, I'm here to help. And so um, the message I convey from the outset is for lots and lots of reasons, people with this condition from time to time may, may want to stop a medicine, they may feel they don't need it anymore and they're better and they'll take matters into their own hands. And the last person to find out is me uh, until I get a phone call down the road from somebody concerned about how they're doing. So I will try to let patients know that this comes with the territory. People, for a variety of reasons, side effects, I don't think I need this anymore. I was curious. I'm on so many pills. What can I do? So just please loop me in. Let's, let's do this together. If you're not happy with things, maybe I can help. Uh, I, I'm really here to help. My motivation is to try to um, get you better, uh, feeling the best version of yourself that you can be with, with as little wear and tear as possible. That's my, that's my pledge. Sage advice, Joe, always great. Always wonderful to work with you and uh, enjoyed our conversation. Thanks to all of you for listening. We hope you found the discussion informative for your clinical practice. And for more information on this series, please visit the show notes. Thank you very, very much. Thank you all for joining.